Hello, I'm Miranda. And I'm Lucas. And welcome to another special Halloween edition of that Yorvik Viking Thing podcast. Once again, we will be reading another spooky story filled with trepidation, ghosts and ghouls, and maybe a few other things that go bump in the nights. Each story will be recorded live and read from the spooky tome. This is episode three, and if you missed the first two episodes, use the link in the description below to go back and catch up. If you dig deep enough into the soil of ancient cities like York, you will no doubt come across networks of dark tunnels constructed by those ancient invaders, the Romans. These putrid tunnels are perhaps the greatest accomplishments of their engineers, where our ancient oppressors flushed away all manner of foul waste. But many things ended up down there which the Romans did not expect. Horrifying living creatures that made this wretched abyss their domain. Animals twisted in the stinking darkness into forms most unnatural. This is just one of those tales, an account passed down to us from the distant 2nd century, a story of a creature that ruled over the darkness beneath your feet. This is the story of the thing that came in the night. In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. We're your hosts, Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. The city where this horrifying incident occurred was a grand, ancient settlement which stood in the heart of the old empire. And it was a place greatly enriched by the fruits of the sea. A certain house stood on the edge of the city, upon the shoreline, and this was the home to some wealthy merchants, who hailed from the land of Iberia. They were fishermen by trade, and had earned the greatest riches exporting fish sauces to hungry provinces across the empire securing enough wealth to reward themselves with some of the greatest luxuries that Roman life had to offer. They were even able to pay for a remarkable feature to be added to their house, a connection to the city's sewers, meaning that their waste was now flushed away into the ocean, out of sight and out of mind. No more stinking chamber pots, putrid carts of night soil, nor the stench of excrement mingled with the fishy aromas of their profession. Truly, a life of urban luxury indeed. The fisherman's most valuable commodity was a mixture of fermented fish blood, guts, and heads that they exported across the empire to provinces as far afield as Egyptus and Britannia. And they were ever vigilant for thieves who might steal their precious foodstuffs. Criminals would go to great lengths to steal such valuable cargo, scaling walls, bribing guards, and resorting to bloody violence if necessary. So the fishermen, quite wisely, chose to keep their jars of fermenting fish entrails safely sealed in the most secure room within their house, under lock and key. Though this just happened to be the same room where their latrine was. As the evening came to an end and the goddess Nox cast her blanket of darkness over the world, the fishermen retired to their beds, though not before checking that their storeroom was securely locked. Little did they know that whilst they slept, a horror they could not have even imagined made its way into the house with a heart full of greed, 
and ever plotting some evil deeds. The fishermen were not awakened by the shadowy interloper, however, but when the sun rose and the invader had departed, they found the remains of the creature's activity. The storage room was a stinking mess of foul fermenting fluids as every single amphora of the fish had been shattered, leaving reeking residues across the floor. Tiles had smashed where objects had been thrown against them, and to make matters worse, a backflow of sewage appeared to have come out of the latrine. Not a too uncommon occurrence in times of heavy rain. The men were baffled as to what had happened, for the door was securely locked, and the roof and the walls were undamaged, so no one seemed to have forced their way in. And nothing had been stolen, except fish, ruining hours of their labor. They were most concerned that the perplexing thief might return to steal again, so it was therefore decided that a trusted servant would be assigned to the room, armed, ready to ambush any would-be burglar. The servant entered the room late in the evening, bringing only a club with which to defend himself, and a single terracotta lamp with just enough olive oil to burn throughout the night and hopefully bring some illumination upon this shadowy mystery. The small flame cast imposing, shuddering shadows upon the wall of the room, and the night was completely quiet. All the servant could hear was a quiet, steady dripping noise that came from within the latrine. In the lonely, silent shadows, time became meaningless, and he was unclear whether minutes or hours had passed. But soon, the amphora of sweet, spiced wine that he drank from caught up with him. Mercifully, his master had locked him in a room with a latrine, so he topped up the oil lamp, carried it across the room with him to go about his business. As he finished and reached out for a sponge soaked in vinegar with which to clean himself, he paused, for he was sure he'd heard a noise. He looked around the room, trying to pierce the shadows dancing with sinister delight upon the walls, but could see nothing in the room, and then he felt it touch him from beneath. He leapt up in fright and turned around, leaning over the latrine in trepidation and peering into the inky blackness within where he was sure he could make out movement. He reached for his club, ready to strike out at whatever foul thing had dared to touch him. He waited. He heard a scratching noise and then it crawled out. But it was just a rat. A moderately sized and rather ordinary rat. Such disgusting vermin had been known to occasionally emerge from the sewers, and no doubt the servants would be tasked with hunting down such vermin in the morning following the incident. The servant walked away, brimming with embarrassment for the fear that he had felt. But then he noticed just how terrified the rat was as it scarpered away to hide in some dark corner. Then he was aware that the dripping noise had stopped. Things became eerily silent for a moment, a moment which seemed to last a lifetime, before a new, unsettling sound replaced it. A disconcerting, bubbling sound echoed up from the latrine, growing louder and closer. Then, a strange liquid began to ooze out. It was dark, as black as Ibarakum jet, and it seemed to swallow all the light that shone upon it from the oil lamp. But then things grew worse. A dark shape emerged, a strange form which the man couldn't identify. It twisted and bended in the strange, unnatural motions, and though it was dark, the color of the thing seemed to shift and shimmer as it moved. There was nothing about this creature that was recognizable, no eyes, ears, or mouth, and it continued on and on to emerge, proving itself to be incredibly large and long. The shape then searched about, blindly fumbling through the shadowy room as if searching for something. 
It appeared to be sightless, for it paid no attention to the oil lamp, nor did it possess anything that could be recognized as eyes. It groped across the tile floor, reaching out ever further and further until finally, it touched a vessel. It slithered around the container before slowly lifting it high and then smashing it against the floor, filling the noxious fishy contents out. And then it wrapped around the largest chunks of the fish, scooping them up and returning back into its dark latrine lair with its stolen meal. The man was horrified at what he saw and prayed that the thing would depart, satiated by the fish, but it soon emerged for a second time and once again began reaching out for a second helping. The servant looked down at the club in his hand and resolved that he must do his duty and strike dead at this nocturnal thief, whatever the thing was. He crept slowly towards it, raising the club high, ready to pummel the thing with all of his strength and shatter its bones. But when his weapon impacted the creature, it had no effect. The strength of that blow would have shattered a man's skull, but this thing was spongy and soft and its twisting, flexible, boneless body seemed to have easily absorbed the blow. But whilst it wasn't hurt, it had definitely felt the impact of the club, and unfortunately for the servant, it began to fight back. The thing changed direction, ignoring the fish supplies and blindly reaching out towards the man. He retreated from it as far as he could go until his back was against the wall and he had nowhere to run. Then it touched him, and the second it had found him, it lunged forward and grabbed his arm, tugging him forwards with ferocious strength. He lurched forward with such force that he dropped his weapon. Not that the club had been effective in any way against the creature. In desperation, he bit down upon the thing, hoping to inflict pain upon it and force it to release him from its grasp. It was horribly soft and rubbery in his teeth, and it left a foul, salty taste in his mouth. As he fell to the ground, he landed near the shattered amphora, and he reached out for a large and sharp shard of the broken vessel. When the thing writhed around the room searching for its prey, the man crept forward with the shard in hand, hoping that this sharp object might pierce the thing's rubbery flesh and wound it. He struck, and it worked! He sliced through its skin and strange blue-colored blood poured from its wound. He made ready to strike again, but then, to his horror, a second identical thing emerged from the latrine, snaking towards him and striking out forcefully. He fell backwards and ducked down away from the second sightless thing that was groping hungrily about the room. And thankfully, gods be praised, he still had hold of the sharp shard. He pondered what to do. Should he hide in the shadows or strike out again at the second thing? But within moments, his heart sank as he saw a third thing emerge. Three of these long flailing things now moved about the room, searching for the man and hungry for fish. Were they strange serpents? Were they even three creatures, or were they the limbs of some great monster that lay hidden beneath? The servant had no more time, or rather no more light left, to gaze upon these horrific intrusions, for the third thing groped and searched across the floor, and as it did so, it brushed the side of the oil lamp, tipping it over and plunging the room into darkness. They found him the next morning, cowering in a corner of the room, battered and bruised, covered in blue and black liquid and reeking of fermented fish entrails. The supplies had clearly been ransacked again and the incompetent servant had utterly failed in his task. When he finally came to his senses, he tried to explain what happened. He told of the many creatures, no, one huge creature with many limbs, no bones, 
and an insatiable greed. It emerged from the sewers, it was wounded, but he could not slay it alone. The fishermen were perplexed, but some of them were curious to see if they would encounter this monstrous spectacle. So the following night, a large group of them waited in the room, armed with sharp, bladed weapons. The thing that came in the night, that midnight marauder, returned once again for its usual feast. But this time, his victims were ready. Armed with razors and choppers, they hacked and sliced at the things, or limbs, or whatever they were, which emerged from below, slicing some away like gardeners trimming away overgrown vines. One man even swore he saw within the latrine the creature's bulbous face with a strange alien beak. But this was just a glimpse, for with their collective strength, they had wounded it terribly, and the thing that came in the night retreated, never to return again. Perhaps the creature learned its lesson at the end of the sharp Roman blades, or maybe it swam back out of the sewers into the dark depths of the ocean where it belonged. But then again, when the men would repair these subterranean tunnels, some would note noises, strange shaped shadows dancing in the darkness, and even an inky black substance spreading through the waters. Many such tunnels still exist beneath the old Roman cities, so perhaps in the future we shall take extra care when digging for ancient secrets, as some mysteries are better left forgotten. Well, that was horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> what on earth was that? <laughs> I, I think it was pretty good. I mean, it was not a ghost story. It was something a little bit different. I think it hopefully engaged some people. But I mean, I imagine most of our listeners are wondering what the heck was living in the poor Roman's toilet? Yeah, so um, should we talk about the text this came from originally then? Yes, let's do it. So I really tried to find a Roman ghost story for this episode, and there's so much literature from the classical world compared to the Viking Age, for instance. I thought there must be so many Roman ghost stories out there. The few I found were terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So we went for this one instead. This story was not originally intended as a horror story, and I'll fully admit that we embellished and extended the original source material just a little bit, to make it spookier and weirder. The original source is quite short and abrupt, but when I read this, I thought, what on earth is this? This is horrifying. I know, when you first told me this story, I was absolutely enamoured. I I just, it's such a good story. So it's quite an obscure text. It's from the late 2nd century, written by a Roman author named, I think it's Elian. My my Latin is awful. Bring back the old Norse, please. Um, (laughs) And this writer lived around the reign of the Emperor Septimius Severus, who, fun fact, came here to visit York. And it's a text titled On the Characteristics of Animals. So it's a science book. It's a book of natural history describing animals with some very strange anecdotes, most of which are not spooky or scary. But this one particular entry was just, wow. (laughs) Um, I thought that is our Roman horror story, a toilet monster. Okay, so it's an animal. It's a real animal. It is a real one. Yeah, it's not like a griffin or anything like that down the toilet. All right, so let's go over what we know about the animal then. What what characteristics does it have? Okay, so it had no bones. He tried to whack it, didn't he? To no avail. It could change colour as well, but I don't think it's a chameleon. It produced a black liquid. Yeah, that was gross, wasn't it? It was very gross, but the black liquid was not its blood because its blood was blue. Yeah. And then one of the Romans at the very end might have seen a beak as well. So it's, I mean, 
It sounds like an octopus. It is an octopus. Yes, a toilet octopus. I mean, it sounds like something out of a trashy tabloid, doesn't it? The yeah. alligator toilet monster in Florida, you yeah. know? Yeah, something's never changed, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, the Romans are quite a bit like us today. So, um... Maybe Romans were freaked out by a giant alien sea creature, like a giant squid. They're real, of course. And that's reflected in this story. Tell us, what does what does the story actually say about the octopus? So we're told that octopuses naturally, with the lapse of time, attain enormous proportions, approaching whales in size. And one particular octopus, which attained a monstrous bulk, which despised food from the sea, swam through the sewers emerged through the toilets into a merchant's house, and using its tentacles going <laughs> through the toilets or the latrine, it grabbed and smashed jars of fish and feasted upon them. Then we had this little short story about the servants spending the night and encountering the hor- horrifying toilet monster. Though it brushed over it quite quickly, I have to say, in the original text. So we stretched it out a little bit here to make it really nightmarish. And of course, in the end, the merchants defeat the creature, and we're told that mischief and craft are plainly seen to be the characteristics of the octopus. All right, so it's a zoology book. What other little facts does it give us about our friend the octopus? They're terribly greedy, and they are forever plotting some evil. So no wonder (laughs) they went up the toilet and... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They'll basically eat anything. They'll eat their own tentacles if they are so hungry. Uh, apparently, it's very common if you have a fruit orchard growing by the seashore, octopus will just climb out and start eating your figs and pomegranates climbing the trees. Never seen it myself. I was going to say, I wish I had like an extensive enough knowledge of you know, yeah. like sea creatures and orchards to be able to say whether or not that's true. Do they swing like spider monkeys through <laughs> the Roman trees? Um, uh, we're also told that their bitter enemies in the animal kingdom are eels. Crayfish and eagles as well. I'm not sure about eagles. Sure. I've never seen an eagle and an octopus have a fight. But You've never lived, have you? I don't live by the seaside, <laughs> to be honest. We are an inland city here in York. Uh, they sound quite horrible the way they hunt. They throttle things with their tentacles and suck flesh out. Now, I'm quite worried that I might get a toilet octopus myself, of course. So, luckily, the book does tell us what we can do. There's a herb known as rue. And it will render an octopus immobile if you sprinkle it upon it. So always keep one of these potted in your bathroom, just in case. It'll rue the day. Oh, there we go, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But do not, under any circumstances, keep olives near your toilet. Because a sprig of olive placed upon a beach will cause an octopus to climb out of the sea onto land. Will they not let us live, Lucas? I can't eat my starter, I guess, <laughs> in the toilet, lest an octopus attack me. Um, but perhaps the toilet is the most ideal place for an octopus to live, because this book also tells us that the octopus is the most incontinent of animals. <laughs> so this all sounds a bit crazy. I, I highly doubt this author actually witnessed any of these animals. It's all based on hearsay, of course. He's not travelled the whole of Europe, Asia and Africa. These are travellers' tales or various monstrous creatures they've seen <laughs> beyond the safe confines of the city of Rome. 
They're probably here to astonish readers and also convey a moral lesson as well. So perhaps with the octopus, it's the perils of being greedy. It's a bit like a precursor to those wonderful medieval bestiaries. You may have seen them before. I have, They'll yeah. have dragons in Africa, elephants that fight basilisks because they're natural enemies, of course. Yeah, yeah. And my favourite, the bonacon, which is a cow that farts fire. <laughs> so we're, we're stepping towards that sort of thing in the medieval period. <laughs> All right, so tell us about Roman ghosts. I mean, you hinted at it a little bit. There were no good Roman ghost stories, but that implies that there were some. They're awful. (laughs) Oh, the Romans wrote terrible ghost stories. So the best one I could find was written by Pliny the Younger, who some listeners may have heard of. This tells us about a large house. It's haunted. There are rattling chains that can be heard. An apparition of an elderly, emaciated man appears and torments people. That's brushed over very quickly. It sounds perfect so far. It sounds good, doesn't it? He kind of rushes through that, though. And then everyone everyone runs away from the house. Then quite a, quite a long time later, a stoic philosopher sees the house of sale and goes, Oh, why is it so cheap? There's a ghost in the house. <gasps> this sounds amazing. I must buy this house and investigate. So the philosopher, he sits down in the, the Roman living room, I suppose. He has a, a set of writing tools ready. And night falls, he hears the rattling chains, the apparition appears, woo! And he goes, fascinating, please stop. Shh! And the ghost goes, what? (laughs) He then gets out his, you know, I guess his writing tablets and his stylus and starts making notes, going, interesting phenomena. It appears to be translucent, it has chains. Hmm, I never knew ghosts were so fascinating. Anyway, good sir, continue. (laughs) And the ghost continues, it wanders off, it vanishes over a certain spot. The next day, the philosopher digs up the spot and finds the skeleton of this tormented, tortured soul. Gives it a good burial. Ghost is gone forever. The end. How did they make a spooky ghost story so boring? Because it is a haunted house story, isn't it? It's just, it doesn't go anywhere, really. (laughs) It's uh, just a boring story about a stoic philosopher. That's the best one I could find. Ghosts do pop up elsewhere, but they're not really ghost stories. They just sort of go, oh, a ghost. Oh, it's gone. So did <laughs> did the Romans not believe in ghosts then? I think some did and some didn't. So when we talk about the Romans, we've got to remember it's a huge empire. Yeah. Of course, we're up here in Ibaracum, the city of York. I'd imagine the people here have completely different beliefs about the supernatural to Romans, let's say, in Egypt or Syria. And also the Roman period is a very, very long time period. All sorts of religions, all sorts of philosophies. So it's a bit like saying the modern people believe in ghosts. Some do, definitely. Some are like, uh, no, definitely not. (laughs) There is a lot of scepticism in the Roman period. I did find a great text from the 2nd century by a writer called Lucian. He writes some amazing things. And it's called The Lover of Lies or The Doubter. It's a satire in which a series of wise and educated characters, they tell stories about ghosts and spooky things, but the main character just explains all these away as overactive imaginations or just going, why are you lying to me? You did not see a ghost. That can't be real. And I found one particular text which makes a very convincing argument against the existence of ghosts. Ghosts cannot possibly exist because the god Pluto, he would not let random people out of the underworld for, what, some petty, unfinished business. It's just scientifically impossible. I mean, come on, mate. You know what? I'm convinced. I'm absolutely convinced now. (laughs) 
so there was a particular thought that plagued my every waking moment since I've read this story. And I, I need an explanation, really. So when the servant is in the latrine area or whatever, he's using the toilet, and then the little monster octopus touches his butt. He then fights the animal, but he never pulls up his trousers. That's is a good he, point. Is he, um, is he fighting naked the entire time? Think, let me bring up my memories of Roman costume <laughs> from other research. So I think the text is second century, and trousers are not yet in fashion in the second century. Oh, so I okay. Think so we just had to drop his He's tunic. wearing a tunic. Yeah. He's a bit loosey-goosey down okay, there, I think, right. yes. Yep, that's, um, that's fine. Like a Scotsman in a kilt, I think, yes. That makes um, me feel much better. So he's not got trousers around his ankles <laughs> whilst fighting this monster, yeah. About 100, 200 years later, trousers become cool. Oh, yeah. okay. Fair so don't enough. worry. <laughs> All right, and so one kind of final note, I think. Um, I mean, we just got planning permission to do a very extensive Roman dig, didn't we? Yeah, very exciting stuff. What are the chances they'll find a Roman sewer with an octopus in it? Ooh, sewer? Quite possible. We have found Roman sewers in other parts of the city. Octopus? Well, they've got no skeletons, so I don't think we'll find one of those down there. Fingers crossed. Yeah. We can't rule it out at this stage. But I guess we might have to do some more Roman content in the future, so I guess we'll have to find some sort of way of delivering that. Hmm. Mm, Watch very, this space. Very interesting. <laughs> All right, so that's my monster story. Do you think you can do better? I think so, yes. I think we need to go back to the Viking Age. I Finally! Think I've got a cracking Viking story, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about archaeology, then come visit Dig, an archaeological adventure, where you can learn how to be an archaeologist, take part in a replica dig, and see a selection of fascinating artifacts from throughout York's history. To book your tickets, you can go to digyork.co.uk. Don't forget to rate and review that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, share us with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favourite history podcast. To contact us for more information or ideas for future episodes, you can email us on podcast at yorkat.co.uk. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeology, hosted by Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. Researched by Lucas Norton, produced by Miranda Schmiederer, Lucas Norton, and Gareth Henry. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.